Alyssa, welcome back to the show. I'm gonna spare you the super duper long intro. If people don't know who you are, they're living under a rock and I will link the description to our last episode. But mm-hmm. I am, I feel like it's been a while and so maybe you could update people with what you've been up to lately since the last time we podcasted together. Yeah, I think it's been almost a year. I don't know if I had defended or not by the last time we talked, but I am officially Dr. Alyssa Lenick. I don't remember if I was in the last episode you or weren't, not. And I was hoping you'd, you'd say that because congratulations. That's awesome. I'm officially Dr. Alyssa Lenick now. So I think it has been about a year because I defended on April 1st, uh, which was appropriate for April Fool's Day. Um, so can, it's can been you, about can a you, year. Can you pit stop real quick and just tell me what that means that you're using the verbiage defending? And I have an idea, but, I, but I, I'm okay. guessing the listener doesn't. Yeah, I defended my PhD dissertation, which is like a big fancy way of saying I stood in front of a room that involved my committee, peers, my family came, um, and I basically gave a very formal presentation going over all the data that I collected in during my dissertation, and then my interpretation of it, and all of that's about an hour long total in total, or probably about 30 minutes in total, and then afterwards, my committee members grilled me and then they t- they tell you if you pass or not. And if you get to that point, you should pass. Most people don't fail their dissertation defense. Um, I luckily passed with like very little edits at that point in time. But, you know, the pandemic gave me a lot of beatings in my PhD enough that and my advisor wasn't even there because his wife gave birth that day. So I just was like YOLO soloing it. But they basically they meet, they grill you, you step out of the room, you come back in, they say, congrats, you are Dr. Alyssa Olenek. Um, so it sounds really anticlimactic. It's kind of the celebration of all of the hard work and worst steps in parts of that process. It's kind of the day where you get to share what you've been working on and then, you know, get some direction for improving things before you turn it in. And then you turn it into the graduate school and then you are done. You spend all this time doing this one thing and then that's it. So what, what was yeah, your PhD on? Yeah. So my PhD, um, my dissertation was on essentially metabolism, sex differences, female physiology, menstrual cycle, birth control. Um, but as much as I've become known, if you guys are coming from the internet, I'm kind of known as the female phys girl. But what's funny is that my traditional training and background really is actually metabolism, um, human metabolism. I just don't talk about it a lot because unlike Jordan, I don't feel like having to explain fat loss theories to people all day, every day. Um <laughs> But I'm really largely trained in bioenergetics, which is energy systems and pathways. And a lot of that actually has to do with exercise and exercise metabolism. So metabolism isn't just the food that you eat. It's also like what your body's doing during exercise. And so my female fizz stuff is stemming from the areas. All of my research studies have either done, been doing high fat meal challenges or exercise metabolic challenges on people. Largely, that's like kind of my expertise and what I do. Um, so yeah, my PhD is like in, in expertise and trainings in human metabolism. Um, and then I've pretty much exclusively only done research and work on women, even through my entire master's, which is unique to say. And then since then I, you know, left my PhD, um, and I have been doing a postdoc, um, continuing my training and education in metabolism and female physiology. So I'm continuing to learn things in those areas to just keep on learning and growing. Um, So I think that was my research expertise, but my PhD is in exercise physiology. So true and true to my heart, I'm an exercise physiologist. Excellent. That's super duper cool. And I think that obviously dovetails nicely into what we're going to talk about today, which is energy system training and maybe maybe yeah. specifically zone two stuff. I try and, to really emphasize that yeah. I know more about stuff than just periods. Yeah. Actually, I know a lot more about exercise than I do about periods. But totally. the <laughs> the the I'm trying to put my finger on what the impetus for my transition into. Not that this is an about me podcast, but I'm I will admit wholeheartedly that like I guess 
just things have changed in the way that I view the limited time that I have to exercise in my life. And I won't make this big spiel uh, right now, but what I will say is that I, for the longest time, have been like the hypertrophy guy and the hypertrophy guy and the hypertrophy guy. And that's because that reflected just 100% of what I cared about in my own life. Um, yeah. And transitioning to being an adult and hopefully soon becoming a parent or whatever those things are, growing up, let's say, like, or just seasons of fitness or whatever the fuck you want to say. Like I've changed my viewpoints drastically, and I think that there's yeah. it, there's a uh, I'm very excited about how, this is what you do for you do hybrid training right you do concurrent training this is your entire shtick um, but that's something that I'm <laughs> absolutely super excited to and pumped up to do myself and have been exploring myself and that's why a lot of this has come about and become a whole lot bigger part of my life and my content and and my clients life now uh, as well and so I'm very excited yeah. to talk about it today what we can maybe start with is. <laughs> Very simple, broad, 3,000-foot view of what zone training is. And I know that we could stay on what the benefits are of each zone for an entire podcast in and of itself. But let's see if we can do the spark notes. I'll to get spare you the speed. time yeah. and I'll plug myself. I have a whole cool. YouTube video slash podcast on zones that goes over every zone for you. And then I have a whole ebook that talks about it even Excellent. more in depth. I'll too. link all that So stuff. there's more places to find if you're... if. Because I feel like there's a never ending list of questions on zones and it feels like no matter how much information I put out there, there's more. So if you're looking for more, I have more. Awesome. We'll grab those and put them in the show notes. Let's do a quick, quick spark notes uh, of the zones and maybe even just before we even get into them, just the discussion of the the different zones you could even be talking about. That We might not actually even be talking about the same thing depending on the zone system that you're referring to. Yeah. So when we're talking about zones, you can think about this. Zones have been around forever. This isn't new. The fitness industry has just decided that cardio is cool again out of That's nowhere. And so bros who have <laughs> oh, like shit. realized cardiovascular disease is real are now acting like they're cardio gurus. And I'm just sitting here and I'm like, I've literally been talking about this for a decade. What? And now it's like everything everywhere. Like I released my ebook that has zones in it in like 2018 and nobody cared. And I was like, what? Okay. So anyway, like, I'm just like perplexed by how we're bringing complex- it back. I'm perplexed by how the industry has taken something that's simple and has been around since the beginning of exercise physiology and turn it into this overcomplicated thing that's now confusing everyone. Um, but if you think about when you used to look at those charts or those old treadmills back in the day and they had like the fat burning zone and they had the three, they had five different colors of the different heart rates based off your age. And that's the zone that you were in. Those are zones, right? The whole myth. And, and this is like me trying to wrap this into something that people are familiar with the fat burning zone is actually pretty much been revolutionized and now turned into zone two training. It's just not being called the fat burning zone. And we can talk about the physiology of like fat oxidation in relation to that. Cause I am a fat metabolism I'd love expert. To. Yes. Yeah. Uh, my whole dissertation is on fat metabolism. Um, but it's that, but essentially what it is, is that there's five different intensity zones and you can even break it into three different intensity zones, which I have in my eBooks and things I talk about because sometimes that's easier for people to understand. And it's this idea that in the very middle, you have your threshold. And that is essentially like your lactate threshold, your ventilatory threshold, the point in which exercise starts to get noticeably fatiguing and hard on your body, right? You don't need to do a blood lactate test or a VO2 max test to figure this out. But I think it helps people understand why zones are the way they are when I explain the physiology behind this. So in the middle of this is this point in which your blood lactate starts to accumulate more rapidly. So you'll feel more fatigued and you've probably noticed this, whether you're lifting or you're running or you're going too fast or too hard, eventually you have to slow down, right? When your blood lactate accumulates, 
you are start breathing out more CO2 because it's producing more CO2 because you're using less oxygen dependent metabolism. So your breathing rate goes up. That's called your ventilatory threshold. Your zones are essentially like the zone three is kind of that area that's like right below that point. That's the highest maximal intensity that you could sustain without having to slow down your steady state. Like everything that's going in and going out is kind of sustainable. You can keep that up. And that threshold is kind of that end of that zone three, bottom of that zone four. And anything above that is essentially it's only sustainable for short periods of time before you have to slow down, rest, pause and or quit, right? Below that steady state intensity or threshold intensity is where you find zone two. And from a physiological perspective, everyone overthinks zone two. You, it's just a place of which you're not having a rapid accumulation or elevated blood lactate level. And therefore the intensity that you're sustaining is not fatiguing on your body. You can do a ton of it, you do not fatigue. You could keep going forever and ever. Theoretically, it is a sustainable, easy, like non-hyper fatiguing intensity that your body can sustain. The reason that this get wrapped back to heart rate, which everyone's going to think about today is because when you are thinking of traditional cardiovascular exercise, like single modal bike run, whatever it is, your VO2 max and your heart rate are linearly related. So on an XY axis, as your VO2 max goes up, your heart rate is going to go up linearly. This is where zones aren't as great with other types of activity because there's a decoupling. The intensity will override your heart rate where it's not. But when we're talking strict cardio, as your VO2 max goes up, your lactate will go up or your heart rate goes up linearly with it. During this, your blood lactate will slowly start to accumulate and it will stay at a low level. Then it will rapidly increase. Same with your ventilatory threshold. You can identify the heart rate associated with those things, which is why heart rate is such an indirect measure of zones training. I know I'm giving a huge exercise physiology lesson right now for people, but I'm trying to keep it as simple as possible to understand why heart rate ends up being the thing that we're measuring. Because I think I saw that you have, you're measuring your blood lactate. First of all, I want to buy a lactate lactate meter. I, I don't know why I don't own one. Um, I'm actually super impressed. I keep, I don't, I mean, I've taken, I'm sure you've done 10, it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 10,000 blood lactate sure. sticks in my life. Um, I'm, I'm very well with lactate. Actually. I love lactate. I love it as a molecule. That's a rant for another day. Um, but the, the point is that you're not accumulating blood lactate. It's at a slow recoverable level. So your heart rates are an indirect association of that intensity. You will never, this is what I think people need to know. Unless you give yourself a true lactate test administered by an exercise physiologist, you're never going to know the exact point of heart rate, which your blood lactate is going to accumulate rapidly. And guess what? For most of you, it doesn't freaking matter. Like you, it really doesn't matter. Um, and I say this as someone who's like, does blood lactate testing and loves it and thinks it's cool and fun and exciting. Um, but that's what we're getting at is these zones are getting us into categories where we estimate the point of which your blood lactate and your ventilation are not rapidly accumulating. So it's an easy, recoverable, non-fatiguing intensity. So the reason is there's benefits to cardiovascular exercise at easy, moderate, and high intensities. None of them are bad, but the issue is you cannot do a ton of high intensity exercise and you, you will fatigue from it. It will be too hard for you to do. You can't do high volumes of it, but there are unique benefits to training at those higher and harder intensities that are slightly different than training at these lower intensities. 
but there are benefits to training at these lower intensities that you don't get at those higher intensities. But because of it's not fatiguing, because it's not as physiologically fatiguing, quite literally, and harder on your body, you can do a higher volume of it and get these special, unique benefits. So I have a graphic in my ebook, Endure, um, that shows it's like high power output, high contractility type exercise, like sprinting, hit, speed work, all that stuff. And then the lower steady state stuff where you can get high frequent contractions. And they're all working on the same pathways at the end of the day at the molecular level. But it's about, you You get slightly different characteristics from doing both of those. But zone two, the reason it's so trendy right now is because one, we have just come off the hit revolution. Everybody was doing hit for a decade. That's all we did was high intensity. And we are finding that hyper swing back from the fitness industry where all of a sudden guys who've been bodybuilding for years, I'm seeing this all over, are having like heart attacks or like triple bypasses. So I think there's this like this triple down in the industry where like cardio is making a comeback in a way that is, I, I know that people hate the word functional, but is more functional, right? So to speak. Um, and then we're getting hyper-focused on what this actually means at the end of the day. Um, so that's kind of like the regular zones. So you have these, these five zones. So you have zone one, which is like, I'm walking, I'm existing, I'm being a human. There's not, you can pretty much infinitely do as much exercise as you want in zone two, but I don't consider it exercise. People get mad at me when I say walking is an in exercise. In zone one, you mean? Yes, like that, like easy, passive, I'm perusing, I'm on a casual walk, I'm doing things. Like that isn't, exercise. That is movement. Your heart rate isn't really going up. You're not physiologically costing you a lot of energy unless you're someone who's very sedentary or physically detrained. Which it might not be zone one for that person, just for, for, yes. for reference. So but yes, I know what you mean. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But like that zone one intensity is like not necessarily going to be bad for you, but it's usually not a physiological stress or stressor. It's very easy. Like you're kind of living in zone one all the time, right? And then you have zone two, which is this zone that is a sustainable, low, easy intensity that you quote unquote feel like you could go forever. Um, but it has a little bit more physiological strain. So it's forcing adaptation and stress on the body, but it's not so much that it's highly fatiguing, hard to recover from, and you can do a lot of it, right? Then you have zone three, which is kind of that steady state. People call this the gray zone, so to speak. A lot of the runner people call it the gray zone because you like, quote unquote, don't get any benefits from it. It's not that you don't get any benefits from it. It's that it's It should be intentionally used with zone four or five, um, and the problem more so is that a lot of people hang out in zone three for zone two. They're doing everything in zone three rather than shifting down into zone two. So it's not that it's bad. You're just not, you're giving, it's almost too stressful that you can't, you're not getting as much bang for your buck in recovery from it as being in that more zone two, but it's that steady state intensity. Like I ran a half marathon a few weeks ago and I was like in zone three to zone four the entire time. Like that doesn't mean I died, right? That makes sense. That was my I'm like, I'm coming off injury. I want it to, to be sustainable, steady state, maintainable, but also like not overly pushing myself. So it would make sense for a two hour effort that I was in my zone three and then put it into zone four at the end. Like that physiologically makes sense. Right. And then you have zone four or five, and that's where more of your traditional, true, actual, real hit speed work, 
all out intensity interval type stuff is going to be where you're sustaining it for like 30 seconds to maybe five minutes. And then you're fully recovering before repeating that same effort because it's not as sustainable. You might be hanging out in something like this for something like a mile up to a 5k all out effort, shorter, harder intensities, but as distance or duration goes on. And I'm using running examples here because I talk to runners a lot, but again, everything this podcast, I think that's an important thing to state. People think that because I talk about running that like zones only apply to running or this science only applies to running. No, it's cardio is cardio. I'm just using the same thing applies. Like if you're biking or swimming or rowing or whatever you're doing, like if you're in these short all out maximal efforts, right, there's going to be a degree of aerobic to it, but it's going to be highly anaerobic. And that's what these zones are. They're going to be forcing you to have more contractility. You're going to have to produce more power output, but you also are training your energy system slightly differently. You're refining more of your anaerobic energy metabolism, where the lower zones, you're improving aerobic energy metabolism. So you're using these different zones and intensities to manipulate your body's energy systems that they're using and training up different characteristics of them that are either for the goal of health or performance, but at the end of the day, health is performance. So that's, you know, that's, there's my, my kind of zone rant. So let me see if I can just throw it back and you can spit it up and <laughs> chew it out. And, um, well, yeah, if we that's a lot. I'm no, sorry. no, no, it's, it's perfect. It's perfect. And it sets the scene for so many, so many discussions. And I think we could even like just start with just very simply, okay, zone one is like walking very easy. And like you said, these are all modality agnostic. Like this is just about uh, the intensity which your body's working, whether that's like running or rowing or, or biking yeah. or swimming or whatever. Um, zone one is like where you're living your regular life and just kind of walking very leisure. There's no, there's not enough stress on the body to cause an adaptation. There's no real recovery capacity. In fact, it probably augments and, and assists recovery. Uh, mm-hmm. Zone two is a little bit more stressful. And as we just go through the zone, just understanding that these are these are representations of, of exercise intensity. Um, yeah. And zone two is, zone, and you can, again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but we're talking about zone two because it is, and, and I, I love, I knew, knew having you on the podcast would, would make one important point. And the important point was that there is no, these aren't inherently better or worse than one another, but zone two, and they all are unique and come with unique adaptations and have merit within context, not inherent merit. And so I think for zone two, I have a feeling it's all the rage right now because it is this spot where we can uniquely work on health adaptations, mitochondrial adaptations, without it actually making you lose gains. I think that's why it's like all the rage right now. And like the people who are like myself included, like, you know, uh, starting to get into cardio. Oh, great. I can get all these health and mitochondrial adaptations without it really, you know, you and I talked last time about interference effect and all that stuff, but it is certainly that that overlaps less with, you know, resistance training adaptations. And so you have this thing that's like, oh, I can get these, you know, if we're looking at the pie chart of health and you have somebody who just resistance trains, just does high intensity resistance training, if you were looking for one other exercise modality to kind of cover other bases as much as possible, you'd probably go with zone two. You probably wouldn't do, you know, whatever. Not that they're mutually exclusive and you only have to pick one thing. I want to I want to hang on one point here and I want to ask because I think we just need to be upfront about substrate utilization here. No, I want to circle back around. I want to get off that topic and I want to get yeah. over to like the uniqueness and again, not inherent benefit, but uniqueness to zone two. And would you say that, Zone two is finding your zone two or your upper zone two, your VT one or whatever is 
the point at which you are, uh, your point of maximum fat oxidation or fat max. And I just want to talk yeah. about what that is and how that was kind of reverse engineered into a marketing scheme for fat burning zone and how that does or does not have anything to do with uh, actual burning of body fat. And then maybe I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but maybe what's actually, what are, what are the actual adaptations that you're seeking to get in zone two, like the end adaptations on a cellular level and, and, and kind of who gives a shit about that. Yeah. Jordan's just giving me my second dissertation defense. Um, so <laughs> one, it, 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 there is a good point there that I want to talk about first is that I think zone two became popular because every meathead suddenly are like, Oh no, like you can do a cardio that doesn't kill your gains. While the rest of us are like perfectly jacked and doing tons of cardio. And we're like, you know, but that is one of the major components of like, you go back and listen to our hybrid training from last year is like, the reason I emphasize zone two so much in my training is because you can do a lot of zone two and still lift a lot and get a lot of benefits. And usually volume of cardio, especially when it comes to running is what gets you most of the way there. Now there are benefits to higher intensity stuff. And I don't want to give off the impression that even if you lift or you do other things that you shouldn't do high intensity training, because there are unique benefits to this. But at the end of the day, for most of us, we don't need as much high intensity training as we actually think we do. And that's where zone two is now coming in. So zone two training is essentially this non-lactate high, like accumulating fatiguing state, like we talked about. Can and this you is important. Pause? Yeah, okay, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead into what the hell that means. Yes. So lactate is, sorry, I like sit on my knees and adjust because I'm too short for my chair. Um, five one, if you don't know. Um, so blood lactate is not lactic acid. It's blood lactate is a molecule that is given off of glycolysis. So when carb is broken down in the body and if it doesn't have a ton of oxygen, it's going to shuttle to lactate. But if there is oxygen available, it's going to shuttle to move it to use in the mitochondria through oxidative metabolism. Now, this is not only happening when oxygen is limited. You are making lactate right now sitting there. Blood lactate is always accumulating in your body. But blood lactate, when it starts to accumulate at higher rates, will start, it actually interacts with the enzymes at the top of the mitochondrial pathway. And it, and it can blunt the basically fat oxidation. It can go in and it can kind of inhibit fat oxidation and or shift things more towards carb favoring. So there's some data that shows that blood lactate might be an indirect measure of metabolic health. And I've actually been interested in blood lactate in the instances of metabolic flexibility. And that's the ability to switch between fat and carbohydrate. Lactate plays a role there with it's like, basically, I'm, I'm going to stop myself before I get too sciencey. Essentially, lactate interacts there with the mitochondria and what allows us to use fat and lets things into the mitochondria to oxidize this fat, things like that. So that's an important reason to understand why I keep talking about lactate here. Um, when you're staying in these lower intensities, what it's doing is it's working in a zone or intensity where your body is as you increase exercise intensity and you increase energy expenditure of your exercise, the total amount of fat you are burning goes up simply due to increasing calorie expenditure, but up to about 45 to 65% of your VO2 max or maximal intensity you can do, depending on your training status, you reach a point where the amount of that fat 
is at its maximum before it starts to decrease. Fat oxidation does go down despite popular belief with high intensity exercise because your body will shift to a state that is more favorable of carbohydrate metabolism and oxidation. This doesn't mean you're broken or bad. This is one, being metabolically flexible. This is important. Um, two, you being more metabolically healthy, fit, metabolically flexible, whatever you want to be having, being better at fat oxidation is being able to do this at a later point in training and fitness and plot twist, Olenek at all can cite that it's has to do a lot more with your fitness status than most anything else. Um, but it's the point of which your body is burning its most amount of calories while the most amount of that is from fat simultaneously. You will start having a higher energy expenditure as you keep increasing intensity, but that fat oxidation goes down because it's unfavorable for your body. It will start blocking those those fat oxidation pathways. You'll start having com competition between molecules. It will start rerouting things back to being burned with glycolysis. You are trying to find in that zone two-ish type state, um, you're, we're not even trying to find it. You're essentially improving the pathways and improve fat oxidation. But doing that, you are also utilizing a lot more fat for fuel. You're still using carbohydrates during this. Don't get it twisted. Um, you're not like, I'm going to do keto because I'm doing zone two. Not, it's a little bit flawed too. I don't want people to think that. Um, but it's essentially this exercise intensity where you are doing a higher level of fat oxidation because it's also because it's more it's oxygen it's oxygen dependent almost entirely in its sense you're using a lot of oxygen during this type of activity to fuel and sustain it that's why you can go for a long time and it's super sustainable right so that's where the fat burning zone from this came from because you are in fact using more fat during this intensity but your absolute energy expenditure is still higher when you're doing higher intensities just because you're not burning more fat and there is some degree to this. There is, there's something called a fat max test where they will put people through this, where they try to see where the parabola, where they peak and go down. Do you and there know is where you can thought. do this, by the way? Do you know where you can get this done? Is it it's a selfish question of, I, I um, would be fascinated to actually see these things graphed. I think that your, your best bet might be like, I don't know if they do fat max testing really anywhere other than research labs. You could maybe like get a VO2 max test and maybe Jordan, you go get a VO2 max test at like a lifetime fitness and we'll do another podcast where I interpret your VO2 max data. That'd be great. Um, but that would be like the next best thing is to see maybe like where your fat oxidation is peaking during your VO2 max test. Um, and then but because because these fat mass tests are kind of staged, they're kind of almost like a lactate threshold test where they're more staged to increase to that. And you're staging and sustaining, staging and sustaining to try to see where that peaks and drops. I just don't know if conventional fitness places do it Maybe. other than in research testing studies. Yeah. Or you can be a, buy a Pinoe portable metabolic unit and then we can just do science experiments over your podcast. Oh, sick, yeah. Year. yeah. <laughs> they're only a couple thousand dollars. Not a big deal. Um, so yeah. So you're essentially using a ton of fat to fuel your exercise here. And by fat, I mean like the triglycerides that are stored both in your muscular tissue and or being rerouted from adipose. There is a degree of truth here. And this is why people care about fat max and fat intensities is because you might be able to, especially because if people are overweight or obese, there might be difficulties or resistance to triglycerides leaving the adipose tissue and cell, whether that is because of elevated insulin state of constantly being in a state of overfeeding or other things that go along with that, I don't want people to start thinking that I'm like pro-keto insulin theory of obesity, but there is little bits of truth in that. So there's this idea that maybe it might help with releasing triglycerides. And there is some degree of truth 
to that during exercise. So making that release easier, that's why it got popular. And there are still people today studying fat max for this reason, because there isn't necessarily, it's not bad to exercise to increase fat oxidation. Like that is a good thing, right? Like having that, that does help your metabolism and your weight regulation, but like all the other stuff Jordan talks about is important too. So that is, I'm just not even going to go on that topic. Um, I'll let you have that. Um, but that is why zone two is so popular because it's really utilizing a ton of fat because of this. But if you are not trained and you are not fit and you have poorly fitness, you are going to find that your zone two is a lot sooner than you want it to be. You're not going to be oxidizing a lot of fat during exercise and you have to train that in order to improve it. You do not, you can't just show up and have it. It's like a trained characteristic that you have to do the thing that you physical physiologically can't really do yet in order to improve the thing that you're trying to do. And I think that's where most of the frustration with zone two comes in. So, so quick recap. So if you're starting from an exercise intensity of zero, let's say you're just sitting here as you're mm -hmm. ramping up exercise intensity, the amount of, let's just oversimplify it. You begin to use more and more fat because your energy expenditure is going up and up as exercise intensity goes up, but it's still mostly utilizing fat. You're still mostly utilizing fat for fuel. And there is a point at which exercise intensity reaches this peak where you're burning the most amount of fat you can. And then we see this steep drop off in the amount of fat you're using. And we see a very steep ramp up in carbohydrate. The whole time you were doing very low intensity cardio, let's say zone one and zone two, you weren't really using a lot of carbohydrates. The ratio was mostly fat. It's not zero carb, but it's essentially for all intents and purposes, mostly fat for fuel at that point. And there hits a point where, again, it's different in everybody at which uh, level of intensity this occurs, where you have you are at a point where you can no longer sustain that level of intensity with just burning that percentage of fat and your body says okay we need faster fuel source we're going to need to switch over to more glycolytic more glycolysis and it is yes. at that point just below that where you are saying okay this intensity i can sustain and this is where i can burn mostly fat and that's roughly how we would objectively define zone two is this point of max fat oxidation prior to switching over to more carbohydrate burning and what you're saying is that when you do switch over to that carbohydrate burning, maybe in that zone two area or zone three area, what's happening is because you're breaking down more carbohydrates, the byproduct of that is lactate. And so we see that lactate go goes up very quickly at that point because carbohydrate utilization is going up super quickly. Um, and so there's this, I you know, again, we're gonna talk about all the ways that people at home can assess whether or not they're in zone two. So when we talk, you and I are talking about like this point of maximum fat oxidation and trying to go into a lab and figure that out, nobody needs to do that. No, no, you need to do that, I, trust me. And, and I, I have tests, I have tests for you. Totally, so. and we're gonna talk about all those practical ways, but I think it's important to just like say, hey, there are these, this is objectively what zone two means, and these are yes. your at-home proxies for it. And what we're yes. talking about objective what zone two is, it's either, and I want to throw it to you because I've heard people talk about it in different ways, it's either fat max or it's keeping lactate below a certain threshold. And yes. I, I've, I'm obsessed and so excited to talk and learn more about the differences between <laughs> those two and all that stuff. And certainly like has to do with your level of fitness and all that stuff. But would you <laughs> prioritize one of those two definitions? Uh, say, okay, if zone two is, you know, point of fat max or is zone two the point of, hey, your lactate's over a certain amount? Or would you say it's, it's a little delicate dance between those two? It's kind of both because you are, I mean, everything in physiology, even energy systems, are not happening in isolation, 
right? Your lactate is accumulating as intensity increases. Your fat oxidation is increasing as intensity increases. They're probably happening in relation with each other, especially when you think about the fact For sure. that blood lactate and increased carbohydrate metabolism directly blunt mitochondrial breakdown and utilization of lipids. So they're probably concurrently happening enough in the body that for the layperson it doesn't matter. Cool. Um, and for us nerds, it's probably not a matter of either or, but both because they both are impacted into related to one another. Because when you're doing like exercise testing, you can see people's fat oxidation is higher um, during certain intensities and then it's switched, but like blood lactate also goes up with that increase in intensity. So it's not like an either, at least to me, I don't feel like it's an either or. Um, I haven't read anything in a few years about like blood lactate levels during fat max testing, but there are a couple papers that came out, one that inspired my dissertation that like looked at blood lactate levels with um, fat oxidation. This was in men and they repeated it in women. Um, it's from George Brooks and Santa Leon's lab and essentially took highly athletic people, regular people and the people with metabolic syndrome and assess their blood lactate and their fat oxidation with increasing intensity of exercise. And they both, they are directly related. And the point at which your lactate starts to rapidly increase, guess what? That fat oxidation goes down and then you can't keep up that intensity of exercise. So it's not like a either or, it's like they're kind of happening to each other. Yeah, no, they certainly correlate. And if you plot them on a graph and you take one step back, they look like they are the same, essentially. Uh, yeah. They look like they are the inverse, essentially. Yeah. And so lactate is, I mean, you have a lactate meter and that is probably way more realistic than someone getting a portable metabolic unit in their house. Um, sure. Unless Lumen suddenly releases something actually worth buying. And like at this point, blood lactate is probably, and that's still kind of not, it, it says there's a price barrier to that too. Oh yes, $300 so, is crazy. Yeah, and yeah, you have to prick your blood and you have to do it within 30 seconds of exercise and you have to really like thoroughly wash your finger. And it's 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 a nightmare. I'm not, nobody Jordan, should do I want that. you to picture doing high intensity interval training with people and having to take blood lactate every three to four minutes, oh, 13 wild. total times while they are cooked up to a metabolic unit while they're also doing HIT. Oh my God, it's it's a mess. Could, could we take could we take a small stick? a small pit stop and say okay? Yeah. Somebody's listened to this. They're like, I don't really know what they're talking about so much. I have a basic idea of like zone two is is yeah. not super easy. It's not super hard. It's this point where I'm burning a lot of fat. Um, yeah. It is technically a fat burning zone that probably doesn't have much to do at all with my ability or the end result in terms of fat loss. And we're going to pack that away here. And if, if you're confused about that topic, you know, you and I both in our po previous podcast, this idea of like substrate utilization, everything we're talking about now, and I don't want to spend too much time on it. Everything we're talking about now doesn't have to do with body fat. We're talking about the actual substrate your body is using to fuel exercise. We're not talking about losses in body fat. It's going to come down primarily to energy balance. Let's park that for a second. Who yeah. gives a shit about this fat, this point of fat max, why do I want to stay there? And is an answer as simple as mitochondrial health good enough? Or do you think if, if somebody asks you that, hey, what, why do I care about zone two? What am I actually, not like what's unique about it in terms of like how to do it, but what am I actually getting from it that is unique enough that I should give a shit? Yeah. So I personally don't even, it's so funny you bring up the fat max stuff because I'm, I mean, I know all about that stuff, but I don't even think about fat max when I think about zone two or when I'm talking about it to people. Like that hasn't even, come out of my mouth in a while, not because I don't think it's important because I'm like, it doesn't matter. It's not relevant goal, to the end, to the end user. It's not relevant totally. to the end goal. So the reason that we are doing zone two training is that because it is a lower intensity, it's recoverable. You're oxidizing a ton of fat. It's also something, this is key. You can do high volumes of this. So you can accumulate more reps in the tank. 
think about zone two training and easy training as like, you know, when lifting the metabolic phase where you're doing like sets of 10 and you hate your life and it's really high volume and you're like, blah, 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 this is terrible. I just want to be strong, but you need to do, it's like the base building. Like I always relate base building or aerobic base training or zone two training to doing that phase of lifting because doing the four by 10 fucking sucks, but you do the four by 10 so that when you're doing the five singles to set for your next PR, you have this incredible reserve in base to pull from, right? And bring it back to the meatheads. Don't worry. I can do it. I actually can do it all. Um, so you, when you're doing zone two training, you can accumulate a lot of volume. We know volume drives a lot of adaptations in training, but the great thing about zone two training, unlike with resistance training, where you have like a limit of what your muscles can do in a week, you can almost do an infinite amount of zone two training. Now you need to adapt and adjust to it over time and this and that and blah, 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 but you can do a lot of zone two training and recover and do it again and again, or do long sessions of it or do it more frequently, right? But so there's the volume component of it is that you can do more of it. So you're getting more of this repeated exposure to it, more volume of it, driving these adaptations. But during in this zone, you are getting increases in capillary density. So capillaries are the tiny, tiny blood vessels that are bringing in blood, which contains oxygen from your bloodstream that's being pumped by your heart and breathed in by your lungs during exercise to your muscles to deliver it for it to use that for energy metabolism. So you're, in, you're increasing the highway system of your muscles, right? That is one of the adaptations of aerobic training in general, but you're increasing the capillarization of that, which means that you are not only being able to deliver more oxygen to that muscle or which means you're able to deliver more oxygen to that muscle. So when it comes to limits of physiological performance for most people, they have, they don't have a delivery issue as much as they have an uptake issue. So it also works on a utilization issue, right? Once you kind of have increased capillarization, you're pumping blood, you're delivering it, your blood has oxygen in it. The matter is, is if you can get your muscles that oxygen, but then get them to use it. So most people have a utilization issue, especially if you're poorly trained. Most people, unless you're elite or like a racehorse, you're not having an issue where you're not bringing enough oxygen to what your body can use. You have an issue where you lack the ability to use oxygen. So we increase this capillary density. So one, we're getting that there, but then within the muscle, we have our mitochondria. You will improve the quantity and the quality characteristics of those mitochondria. There's two different things. You're increasing number. You're also increasing size and efficiency of that mitochondria. And this is because when you're doing these types of, of activities as high contractility, easy, sustainable, oxygen demanding type of exercise, you are stimulating these pathways in your muscle. So we know the gains pathway. So, you know, do, I don't know people, you know, mTOR podcast people, we all know mTOR. AMPK and PGC1 alpha are the mTOR of the aerobic fitness pathway. So think of them like that. They are the master switch, the master regulator. They are like the light switch that turns on all the lights in the house and downstream pings, everything else, the domino that sets it all off, whatever lets you think of that. And so this is stimulating those and that instead of mTOR stimulating muscle hypertrophy, AMPK and PGC1 alpha are stimulating increased mitochondrial biogenesis, which is making the engine of your muscles more powerful, more efficient, and more of them. So you're taking the car that you have adding in building a second engine, but you're also taking it and making a, like a six cylinder to an eight cylinder, so to speak. I don't know a lot about cars, but I know enough to make that it's analogy, yeah. right? You're turning it into a hybrid. Um, and so that's essentially what you are doing. 
You are doing that during the zone two training. And it's important because you don't not get those benefits from the high intensity training, but you are limited by how much of that you can do in a week. You do get mitochondrial benefits from the high intensity training. You get sometimes a little bit more specific ones. So I don't want people to think that like, oh, I can get away with only doing zone two. You should do a little bit of intensity stuff every single week. Mm -hmm. But this is really important because you're getting a lot of these broad brush adaptations that literally, I keep saying literally, and I sound like a valley girl. I swear to God, I have a PhD. I'm really just trying to emphasize this. You are making it so that your body can take the oxygen that you're breathing in. And it's not just like blood flowing over the muscle and not doing anything and coming right back out your mouth, but it's going into that muscle. And then it's being able to pull that oxygen to drive energy metabolism to keep you going, right? So you're improving that. And so what this does, this is an adaptation of fitness, like physical fitness, aerobic fitness. People who are more aerobically fit have higher mitochondrial capacities. They have higher mitochondrial quality. They also have better relationships of this to metabolic health outcomes and performance outcomes. Like this is all related to each other. This is my bread and butter right here, baby. This is it. PhD summarized. And that is why we are doing this because you want to make it so you are more efficient. So that means that you are better, you're better at using oxygen for fuel. So that means next time you do four by 10 in your sets in the gym and you're winded, you recover better between those sets and can go back to it. That means when you are doing your speed work and your high intensity, your heart rate's dropping faster and you're utilizing oxygen more rapidly to recover. That means that you are just overall relying less on carbohydrate metabolism to get through your day, which is a good thing. And you're able to then be able to use oxygen more, which means you can shift this point of which you can do your zone two or your fat max or your lactate accumulation point to the right to a higher percentage of your VO2 max or your heart rate, which is why I have to give you guys the whole science lesson behind this, right? Because you're increasing and improving these things. And that is, it's not only unique to zone two. I mean, if you do cardio of any intensity over time, you're going to improve these things. Like your body's going to adapt, but it, it, you get a more bang for your buck with less fatigue and you can do more of it overall to get these adaptations. So yeah. there's my- No, I, I love that so much. You're, you're, it's almost like, the the uniqueness is the fact that you could do a lot more of this stuff without uh, failing for other reasons like recovery or just like mus from a muscle perspective. You're you're like I can do this zone two like in perpetuity and do a lot more of it and get more of these mito more, more mitochondrial biogenesis, more better functioning mitochondria, more capillary density. Where if I were to pursue those adaptations in zone five. I would never be able to do enough of it to actually make a meaningful difference because it's so intense and I would be limited by recovery at some point. Mm -hmm. um, I absolutely love that. There was a question that I had for you and it's going to slip my mind, but we're going to get to it in a second here. Okay. Um, all right. Well, if I if I think of it, we'll come back to it. But what I was going to say is that, uh, whoop, let's go back one second here. Yep. I made a note. So one of the, we're going to talk in a second. I know I, we, we're, we're already moving through time here, but uh, <laughs> I want to talk about subjective markers, how to know you're in zone two. It's like one of the biggest questions that people are going to want to know about. Um, but you had mentioned something earlier about, um, you know, I don't even know what you were talking about, but I made a note. And and this idea that like you could go out for a, oh, you said you were talking about how, how lactate in the blood blunts fat oxidation. And so it's like yes. once you're, working at a high enough intensity where carbohydrate metabolism or carbohydrate utilization is going up, that's creating more lactate, that the presence of lactate outside the mitochondria is kind of on some level blunting fat oxidation. It's stopping your ability to utilize fat. And in some ways, it's essentially, it's stopping the adaptations that would come from fat oxidation, which are some of these mitochondrial things. My, my whole point here is that some people will say, and I've experienced this with clients, they're like, oh, I went out for a run 
And of my two hour run, 40, you know, Jordan said, you know, we're going to try and get hundred minutes of zone two or whatever it is. And of my two hour run, 45 minutes of it were in zone two. And that's factually true insofar as a proxy of heart rate. But is that the same as spending intentionally just 45 minutes in zone two because of some of this like lactate presence in the blood in the middle of your run, let's say. So there might be, so this is the thing where things get messy and complicated and it's hard to answer direct questions for people because I know it's like everyone wants to know when they're exactly in it and what they're doing right and how to get there. It's that the body will fluctuate between intensities. It will fluctuate between energy systems, right? You will produce blood lactate, but also if you slow down enough to an intensity in which your body can clear it out, it will immediately clear it out. It's not hanging around. You're immediately going to, it's called the Cori cycle and you go to your liver and your heart and it will be remetabolized to glucose to be used in other energy metabolism. And also carbohydrate metabolism too. It's not just lactate, but there is components of carbohydrate metabolism that are blunting that too. And the idea is that, so yes, you're not not getting benefit of doing that, but if you're getting a ton of fatigue, across the run because you're going between those things, it's not going to be the same as if you're, okay, I had 45 minutes of specific zone two, and then maybe they had cardiac drift, or maybe they were doing a a fast finish or increasing intensity. So it's not as if like, that's a technique in race training is where you'll do like easy miles for like so many miles, and then you'll do a fast finish or increase paces or intervals towards the later end of your workout. That doesn't mean that that zone two was worthless, right? But if you're someone who's going out and you're, oscillating between zone two to zone four and you're all over the place, you're not getting no cardiovascular benefit. I think this is where people freak out because they're brand new to training and they're like, oh my God, my heart rate isn't consistent. I can't do this. And they like act like I'm lying to them. And I'm like, and like, I'm personally attacking them because they can't stay in zone two. And I'm like, you just lack fitness and you just got to keep doing it. And you got to keep trying to slow down and keep it as steady and consistent as you can while you're doing it, right? So the answer to your question is, it depends on if that was a consecutive 45 minutes or if it was like, gotcha. oh, 30 seconds here right. and one minute That's here. more of the circumstance that I was saying. It's like a net 45 versus like, hey, I have this block of time, which is which is helpful. Yes. And I think the take home is that you're not getting no benefits, but it's, it's, come on, it's not exactly the same because it's not exactly the same. It's overall gonna be a little bit more stressful, which yeah. is like where a lot, most people are doing the runs, right? Sure. This is why this is so flabbergasting to most people because that, and I will say, and it's important for this podcast. Zone two is going to be a lot easier on an erg than it is going to be running. Yeah, we're definitely going to so, get to that point for sure of yeah. like discussing modalities here. Let's talk about how to know you're in zone two. We have two objective measures that I think both of us are think are intellectually stimulating to talk about, but completely impractical for people to actually do in real life. And that yeah. is to test your lactate and make sure it's, you know, whatever in, in a certain range, which nobody needs to do. Um, but if we have time, I will pick your brain over. And the second would be yeah. to like go into a lab and do like an indirect, indirect calorimeter and like actually like put the mask on and, and see your, you know, CO2, O2, you know, kind of saturation expenditure, all of that stuff, which again is completely impractical. So you're explaining this to on this podcast here as if you're explaining it to a client. How yeah. are you explaining these, what we would call maybe proxies for being in zone two? So I like to use a few different things and I like to remind people don't let your ego say, oh, I'm going to rely more on this one because I feel like it's more right because it feels better to me. Oh, hell yeah. A lot of people's biggest mistake with zone two of them being like, well, I feel like it's easy, so it's fine. And then they're like, it's not working. And I'm like, well, if you actually like were honest with yourself about your intensity, it's not that you're getting no benefit. And in the beginning, when you're first new to cardio, your heart rate's going to spike because you looked at a bike like that. Just normal. Get over it. Just get on the bike and don't overthink it. Right. You're not fit enough to worry about that is what I like to tell people. It's like them. I mean, harsh truth because I'm not either. Right. 
But I like using a combination of a few things. Heart rate. People hate the heart rate thing because heart rate is the thing that's the most confusing and frustrating. And I'm going to tell you all right now, if you are so obsessed with the heart rate, just go buy a damn chest strap because it's, it's the best be thing ever, by the way, it's accurate way more accurate than photoplethysmography, yep. which my that's what this is called, because you're going to have because all these my whoop, your Garmin, my Sanuto, whatever it is. I don't even have a chest strap. I need to order one. I just I just didn't have one Um, when I got a new watch. and I need to get a new one again. That is going to be the most accurate because it's picking up your actual heart signals. Photoplethysmography is good. It's fitness trackers. If they're good at one thing, it's heart rate and steps like they're pretty good at those. But when you're moving a lot and you're having changes in blood volume, it's essentially indirectly, man, I feel people are going to listen to this podcast and be like, wow, listen, there's a lot more than I thought she did. <laughs> it's essentially um, measuring changes in blood volume and light shattering distribution. So like, that's what's best. So it's, it, it might have some lag time catching up. It might be all over. It might be affected by tattoos or skin color and things like that, blah, 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 blah. It's not bad if it's the only proxy that you have, but you have to learn to use the tool that you have for what it's doing. So when I run in zone two on my whoop, because you cannot adjust your zones on your whoop, I'm in zone three. Is that because I'm in zone three and I'm going to die? No, but that's because my whoop thinks my zone three is for what I have established myself. I'll tell you guys about this in a second is my zone two, right? So when my whoop says that I spent like a mat, a bunch of my workout in zone three and then zone two, I don't freak out that it's in zone three because I look at the heart rates of which I was at in that because I know where my zone two heart rate falls, right? Can we pause so on that real quick and just and just gently talk about, so like if you are using a wearable, if you're using Garmin, using Apple Watch, Fitbit, whoop, whatever, to not even at all categorically don't utilize these zones that they're giving you. I would go so far as to say that, even though that that's a bit abrupt, I would say that we just have better proxies than like the, the goop and the whoop and the Garmin. They're doing their best shot to like give it a ballpark, but like their whole point is they don't know you and you know you and we have better proxies for that. So would you say, all right, categorically, let's so, not use these things yes or no. loosely. I think that the less fit you are, those low heart rate ranges they want you to get in is actually more accurate. And I know you don't want to hear that. The less fit you are, the lower your zone to your heart rate is going to be. And I know people hate that. So those age estimated predictors and categories, assuming that your wearable is really tightly fitted to your wrist, we're knowing that it's going to be a little bit wonky. You're not using a chest strap. It's not going to be perfect. But when you're less fit, the lower heart rate intensities are probably a more accurate depiction of what your zone two is. So... Yes, having a chest rate would be better, but some of their guesstimate where you might land predictions that are lower and freak people out might still be fine. Right. Not so I know that's confusing for people because I'm like, wrist-based trackers aren't the best, but like they're not so far off that like you might be off a little bit. And you can use these other measures we'll talk about in a second. Exactly. But the reason that people freak out about them is because they're one, there's incongruency between them. I made that meme last week that was like, if my whoop heart rate is this range, then my Garmin is this range, but then my RPE is this range, then what is my zone two? Because that's what people do. And I'm like, just figure out your heart rate range and don't worry about your watch's predictive ranges. Right, that's what just I'm look at the heart rate yep. that it's giving you. Yep. Like, but if it is a lower heart rate range than you like, and it's harder for you to get in, if you are less fit or new to this, that actually might not be the watch that might actually be where you're needing to train. So sure. like my beginner people in my programs or my, I just made a thing on this for my clients. It's like, if you're not super trained and you're new to running, like you're probably going to go, going to go more off of that true age predicted heart rate max, rather than like, I'll talk about in a second what we do instead for people who are a little bit more trained to get a little bit more accurate read on it. 
because you're less fit. So remember that lactate threshold shifting back and forth and Jordan, we can go over if we need to, it's okay. Um, I see you looking at the time. Um, when you're less fit, that lactate point or that point of fat oxidation decreasing is sooner. It's quicker. You're less fit. You're immediately going to shift to carbohydrate oxidation. Your heart's going to spike. Now, this is why it's easier to figure it out on ergs versus running because running is going to spike it for some other things. And there's some other reasons your heart rate might increase that are unrelated to this, but pick, figure out a heart rate range. And regardless of the wearable that you're using, just stick to that. Now, heart rate is great, but heart rate, like I said, can be swayed and impacted by a few different things. So we don't want to only rely on heart rate. Now, if you're someone who's actually controlling your controllables and you're pretty routine with your fitness and health, your heart rate's probably actually pretty, not that bad, honestly, um, other than environmental things. But I also like using RPE in ventilation and then like colors and the talk test and things like that, which talk test has to do with like ventilation. So RPE can apply to cardio too. And when you're in zone two, you want to be in like a, like an RPE four to five Stop lying to yourself. You do the opposite. You underload your lifts and you're like, this is 53% of my one rep max and this is RPA and I mean it. And then you give you an AMRAP and you're doing 20 reps and you're like, gasp. You're doing the opposite with your running. And I'm telling you right now, I love you, but you're doing the opposite with your running. You're saying, oh, I'm an RPE four or five, but you're an RPE six or seven. You And go do an all out like mile test sprint. Figure that out. Like just like you do a max test with lifting, right? Figure out what your true max effort feels for you. And so the way you can know if you are in your zone two, if your heart rate's super off and you don't trust it and you feel like you're lying about your RPEs, then ventilation. Because remember that ventilatory threshold we talked about, increasing, picking up. The key is people, it's not like you are people, again, got you can't lie to yourself, right? People are like, oh, I said a few words, so I passed the talk test, so I was in zone two. No, you need to be saying like a 10 to 15 word sentence. If you follow me on Instagram, you will see me talk on my phone and rant to my stories while I'm running. And I became famous for that, like back when I was training for ultras in 2019, 2020, people were like, oh my God, how do you talk to your phone? Like this is when the, the beginning of zone two happened for me with my followers. They were like flabbergasted that I could talk and breathe and carry a conversation while I was running with my phone out in front of me. And that's because I was in my zone two. I was running at an easy, sustainable pace where I was able to produce enough oxygen to sustain my muscles, but also I had so much oxygen left over that I could talk, right? Because that oxygen is going through your body. You're not using all of it. You're breathing it out. You're not bringing out a ton of CO2. So you don't want to be like, being like, you're like, I'm Jordan, I'm running high. Like, that's not like how you want your, your talking to be. You want to be like, I think I joked the other day on my, on my thing. I was like, hi, I'm Melissa Lennox and I have a PhD and I'm a pop, I'm a postdoc and I'm running and I'm lifting. And I was like making a joke talking about myself, but I like went on this rant to show people. I'm like, look at how many words that I can say without gasping for breath right now. Running and talking actually does make me gasp for breath for other reasons than that. But my point that I'm making is that you're able to breathe to the point that you can produce like two sentences that are like chopped up, but like you could carry a conversation if you had to with someone. And then the next thing with that too, I think ventilation is probably going to be the biggest one. Like you really, like if you're unsure about everything, like, can I talk for two full sentences? And I catch myself on this all the time, especially when I'm really fatigued that you're going to have to slow down more when I'm really fatigued, my training volume's high or whatever's going on. I have to just bring it back. Or I was sick last week. And a science infection. So my heart rate was really high all week. Everything I was doing wasn't like, so my heart rate data was just all over and I knew it. So I just kept coming back to my talk test to make sure that I was like, not just because I couldn't breathe through my nose. You know what I mean? Like, hey, where am I actually at? But the next one is too, is like thinking of like your perception of colors around you, right? When you're doing a hard workout or intensity, you start to zone in and you start to feel that like almost like my Zoom background right now. Everything starts to like focus in. And you feel like the color and the aura around you is like orange or red, hot, intense. 
like that kind of focus feeling you get where if you're like zone two, easy, sustainable, you feel like you're, can be aware of what's around you. You can pay attention to details. Things feel blue. They feel light. They don't feel heavy. And you can kind of tell like, as your focus, like think about with lifting as your focus increases. So does the intensity increases. So does your focus and interest, right? That's why we don't want to do zone two because it's not exciting and interesting to us. So like it should feel a little bit boring, but I don't want to say boring because it can be enjoyable, but like, that's a way to check in with yourself to be like, Oh, am I focusing a little too hard on producing this amount of work? Cause it's probably means that even if it, cause some days you have really good runs or cardio sessions where like, you feel like you can, you can go a little harder and it feels sustainable, but you're focusing a little bit more than necessary to sustain that. And that's a way you can like check in with yourself too. Um, so I like to, I encourage people who feel frustrated by all this to use a combination of these things. And so like, for most people, heart rate does work. I And people don't like to hear it because they're like, well, my heart rate's in zone four and this is a lie and this is wrong and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, you're just not fit. Love you. You're not fit. In that way, yep, right? In that way. But yep. the issue is that you have to train cardio because even over time. So like if you're new to cardio, you can just ignore zones for a little bit. Don't worry about it. Just focus on making it easier, going easier, not going all out, do RPE, try to do your talk test, but then give yourself six months or so to adapt before even a year, if you need to, before you worry about this stuff, because like, you're going to drive yourself crazy. People like, oh, they'll buy my 5k beginner plan. There's like, there's not zones in this, but I want zones. I'm like, you don't need zones. Just just wrong, especially if you're slower and you're trying to get that cadence up and you're working on too many things. Like people were not doing zone two until apparently three months ago. And now it's the, all the rage and no, none of us died. Right. I didn't know about zones when I was running growing up. I just went and ran and I was fine. I was a great athlete. Like you're, you're going to be fine. And this is where this is important because it depends on the volume. If you're only doing three days of cardio a week that are 20 to 30 minutes long and they're moderate to high intensity, guess what? You're probably fine. The person, this is why people can do a bunch of CrossFit wads, but do nothing else and be totally fine. The less you're doing, the more intense you can go because you're getting more bang for your buck out of it. So it doesn't really matter. Just do what you need to do to get it in. Where I'm right now, I'm doing six to seven hours of running a week right now. I'm well, one, I'm coming off an injury, so I'm not doing that much intensity, but I'm pretty much in zone two for all of my runs, except for when I get to hill on, I'm in my long run. I do like zone three hill efforts, right? Like intentionally, cause I'm trying to train that. So I'm only spending like a fraction of my week and intentionally harder intensities. Right. And then the rest of it. So like, you have to keep in the context of like, if you're new to this and you're just doing a couple cardio sessions a week, like the point that we're trying to make is slow it down just a little bit, make it easier. So that way, when you're doing the harder efforts, they're more intentional, but if you're not give it time, you will not die and ask if you're lying to yourself. I've seen that actually, that that's funny. That's a funny kind of paradox between, or like a inversion between how we view our lifts. I actually think that that is 100% how I've felt as well, where I've like undershot my, or I've like under assessed my RP on my lifts and over assessed or on, on my, on my cardio and over assessed them in my lifts. That's totally something I've seen that I think you put really well when we're looking at these like subjective. Cause again, everyone listening here is not doing lactate. They're not going to a lab. We, I'm going to reiterate what you said, and maybe we can add a smidge of detail. So we have our like four potential things that we'll use. And, you know, again, like you said in the beginning, using them all or trying to be super detailed with it, the amount of detail you need to use probably scales with fitness and experience mm -hmm. and, and how trained you are in, in those adaptations. And so, again, in the beginning, it's a little bit less important. Just like if it's your first day in the gym, you don't need fucking specific RIR on everything either. But, um, no. but our four things would be heart rate, uh, talk test, RPE, and like a general subjective level of focus. Like how, and I love that one because I can, I can, I almost think of it like 
again, they're, they all triangulate so well because if you exceed that level of focus requirement where you're like feeling like really in the zone with every step and it's very intentional, like that probably like limits you, that probably is synonymous with an inability to multitask, which I would almost say is part of like my zone two uh, kind of proxies of like, could I also be kind of doing something else and focus on something else? Or am I like fucking in the zone, focus on every step? Like then I know I've, I'm, 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 I've gone too far. The talk test, I think if we're RPE, if we're trying to put something remotely objective on it, we're in that like four to five range. For a mm -hmm. talk test, we're probably in that like, can you say a 10 to 15 word sentence without gasping for air? Deeper breathing's fine, but probably this like rapid uptick in speed where you have to stop in the middle and pick pick up your breath is probably indicative of like, or at least it's like one check in the box of like, yeah, maybe I'm not in zone two anymore. And if we had to look, and I want to pick your brain about the talk test as, for as much time as you'll let me, but um, yeah. for, for heart rate estimates, what, you know, you, I would say that the two that you'll see are uh, 70 to 80% of max heart rate or 180 minus your age is your top end zone two. Are either of those, and I, and I will start by saying, again, these are ballparks. They're different for everybody. They're certainly going to be different based on how trained you are. But if we're just looking at like, hey, this is one piece of the puzzle. We don't need to be as specific because we're going to use a lot of these proxies. Do either of those uh, fit more or which of those, if either of them, would you say is is more or less accurate? So more traditionally, I actually consider zone two to be 60 to 70% of heart rate max. So that's probably cool. more accurate for last less fit, fit people. people. Sure. As you get because more fit. That max heart rate, because that max heart rate reading is is less accurate for less fit people. And in general, just the intensity of what you're going to have all those physiological switchovers gotcha. is going to be lower. Um, then as you get more fit, you'll probably find people having a higher zone too, because they're shifting those points at which things are hard and high intensity. A good metric for a lot of people is like, especially like mileage pace too, is like usually like you're probably going to take like what's your fastest mileage pace that you can sustain. And like almost half of that added back is probably where your zone two is going to be like, so like two to four, five minutes slower sometimes um but i i can't remember the next thing that you asked well, me. i'm curious if, if either of those oh, heart rates yeah. so people ask me a lot of time it's like 220 minus your age or you can do the math method where it's like i think like 180 minus percent of this and like if you do the math they really don't come out to be much different than like maybe five beats from one another and I'm telling you right now, a five beat difference isn't making or breaking everything for you. If you're not like redlining the upper end of your zone two and everything you do and basically being in zone three and lying to yourself, find like if you do the math for most of these things, it's probably fine. So what I personally do with clients in my running programs, um, my hybrid training system or my ebook and Dur talks about this and has these tools as well is we do percentage of heart rate, 60 to 70%. For percent of max heart rate, regular one max heart rate. I just do 220 minus your age because I find that's easy. And if you know your true heart rate, it's it's a lot easier than like these fancy. But I have it all in a calculator for people. Um, but I do something called a threshold test, which is my indirect, in the flesh way of having people test their threshold. Now, this is more accurate the more fit you are and the longer you're going. Right. So in my beginner programs, we do like 30 beginner 5k. We don't do it at all. You don't do it at all. But then in my beginner, like 10k half marathon, marathon programs are like, as you build up like lower distances, they do 30 minutes, but as they build up in distance, they go up to 60 minutes. Or like, I just recalculated my zones with my half marathon effort. And what you're doing is that by doing this, and this is why you have to have a little bit more training with this, you're taking your max average heart rate. So not your max heart rate. So I think a lot of people, I had to kind of have this pep talk with clients because they had like a random blip on their data that said their their max was like 187 and calculating their zones off that. I'm like, no, 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 no. 
that, cause then their zones are really high. And I'm like, we're not doing our max random heart rate we had when we got to a hill and we went too fast. We're doing our max average sustained heart rate, right? So like in my half marathon effort a couple of weeks ago, for example, my max average sustained heart rate was like 168 beats per minute. So I plugged that into my threshold test calculator. And my zones came out to be what they've been for like the last bajillion years for me is basically as long as I'm under 148 beats per minute, I'm in zone two. Now that's a little bit higher though than if I do my 60 to 70% where that probably has me running at about below 142, 140. So you see, that's not that much different, but it's enough that it's meaningful. So when I'm running, I like to make sure my heart rate is like under 148. And I calculate that based off my fitness, right? And those training intensities for me and all of that. And so I have clients do that. I have it where it calculates out and then it gives them estimated paces based off their max sustained pace where it's probably going to fall and then their heart rate and then like how that heart rate and pace is going to be impacted by heat and humidity because that's a huge factor, especially coming into summer here for people. Hence, you're going to have to run slower. Um, is So that's what I like to do with people because it is frustrating when you do see that your watch wants you to be in like, because people will get some watches will tell them be like 113 to 125 beats per minute for zone two. And I'm like, of course that feels unrealistic, but like your 60 to 70% is probably putting you about 135 beats per minute. And like this summer, when I was coming back from injury, I ran all of my runs at 135 beats per minute the entire time. I was slow as molasses because I had an Achilles injury, but I ran every single run at 135 beats per minute. And it doesn't matter how slow you're going in the zone two. I'm like, it, 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 or how uh, with your, whatever you're doing, especially if you're in the gym and you're not even training for something fitness wise, where you care about a pace, like running, it literally doesn't matter how slow you're doing it. Just get into the intensity. Like that's where I think people get more frustrated because oh, yeah. it's taking them longer to do the running workouts. But if you're just doing it for time, do it for time. Don't worry about pace. Don't worry about distance. Don't worry about anything else. Just literally do it for time. Right. Um, so that's what something that I like to do with people for running wise to give them a more depiction of that. And you can do the same thing. You do threshold tests for swimming and biking and things like that. But for the rest of you, especially if you're not doing it running wise, you're doing it. It is a lot easier to do zone two in a bike or a rower or a ski erg. So I would say just do 60 to 70% of your heart rate max. If you are doing an erg, unless you're super, super fit and you know it, and you can kind of tell that you can squeak up higher on that, right? Like I'm technically in my zone three by my watches measures, but I know for zone two, like that's a point that I can sustain that I can breathe. I can talk. I can think I'm like really lackadaisical for me. And then that helps factor in some individual variation and variety too, rather than just age predicted heart rate max. Cause that can be, you know, you're better off figuring out your true heart rate max. If you're going to do that rather than age predicted, just because not everyone's age heart rate declines with age the same way. And there can be up to like a 10 to 15 beat per minute difference, especially women might have higher heart rates. So like, you know, go do a couple hard effort, all out sprints and see where your heart spikes to, and then kind of use that rather than your age. If you want a little bit more accuracy. I can see where somebody who is concerned with performance and speed and, and doing a run that they are, that is, um, chipping away at an adaptation that hopefully that will eventually let them do something they want to do better, that they're performance driven. I can imagine that there's a real risk, like you said, where you're like focused on time and you're, or, or on your time for a certain thing, your speed for something, that there's a, more of a risk to overcook it. Um, but if you are, I'm guessing the majority of people who are listening to this podcast, I don't know, but I'm guessing are like, okay, like that's cool. Maybe I'm a little less performance driven. I'm more about, like you said, where I'm, I'm here for the health benefits so I can fuck off with worrying about how fast I'm going. Would you say that for that person in particular, but potentially for everybody, if you're trying to triangulate based on heart rate, the talk test, 
RPE, general focus levels, and you're on the fence and you're just not sure that you might just fall on the side of being a little bit more conservative than being a little bit more aggressive? Yes. You can't go too slow on your easy efforts, especially your easy run days. And I will say this, this is at all my clients. If you're listening, I love you so much, but you know, all the questions that come up about this, even on Instagram, I love you very much. You are overthinking it so much. You are stressing yourself out and you were spiking your heart rate. Cause you're like looking at your watch and checking your breathing and checking your pace and looking at things. And you're like, Oh my God, I can't. And you're like, just ease into it. Like, I think my best analogy, there's a, like from the book born to run. It's like, you don't, you don't jump into like a four or five hour run. You ease into it. Like you're getting into a hot bath. And I always think about that with running. Like you want to ease into your easy runs. You want to like, kind of think about like when you're getting into hot tub or getting a hot bath or easing into things. Like if you spend that entire run, checking your watch, checking your pace, checking your thing, thinking this, stressing yourself, like, of course your heart is going to spike because you have an anticipation effect, right? Like that's normal. So like, let yourself get into a physiological steady state. Um, with those things instead of stressing yourself out all the time, but you can't, you can't do it too slow. And I'm coming back from an injury and finishing my PhD and I lost so much fitness. And it's actually really humbling for me to share my comeback to fitness journey with social media because people expect you to be really fit. And I was running my easy runs in the eights a few years ago when I was training for my hundred K and even the paces I'm running now, it was when it was like hundred percent humidity in Athens in the summer. And I was slowing down and guess what? I'm running that slow now all the time consistently, but my pace that I sustained for my zone two, from my run walk intervals coming back the summer till now is three minutes a mile faster. And I didn't do anything but run in zone two. Worry about your pace and your intensities in, during your hit workouts and your speed days and your quality days and that kind of stuff. That's where that matters more than what, and I'm talking to like, even if you're doing zone two work in your day, I'm really going to encourage most of you to do at least one high intensity interval session a week or sprint interval session and worry about the quality and the effort and the paces of those. And if you keep doing zone two long enough, you will find if you actually stick with it and you are patient because aerobic adaptations take a long, long, long time, like painfully long, like, like almost like it feels like it's not working long. Um, you will notice all of a sudden one day your pace will drop or your heart rate will stay this will stay low at a at, you know what I mean like we'll stay lower like you just have to keep going for that adaptation to click the 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 and you can keep me posted on how much time you have I have at least 15 minutes if you or if you're open for it but um the the getting into a warm bath thing the thing that's helped me a lot is to commit to a pace and assess later um, instead of like intra cardio checking and intra cardio trying to adjust things and just saying, just saying, okay, maybe it took me 10 attempts at modulating my pace and my incline on, let's say on my treadmill to find where I was able to triangulate some of these markers and figure out my zone two, instead of like, while I'm in the session being like, my heart rate's right here. Let me go down 0.1 or my heart rate's right here. Let me go up 0.1. It was like, you know what? I had a couple sessions that were too easy, you know, easier than, than, than where I would have liked to be at a couple sessions that were too hard, but I just decided I was going to do the session in its entirety, whatever I set out to do, and just see kind of what happened and triangulate the things as I'm going, but maybe not assess the heart rate and stuff altogether. And so I think that that's been quite helpful. And it's a little bit easier for me to do that because I'm not as hung up on like the the like the actual performance end of things. And so I'm I'm all right with spending months you know, kind of figuring that out and not wasting time missing out on performance. I want to just, we must talk about how to know you're improving over time. What sorts of things are you having people track that they can keep an eye on? And last but not least, how might you frame the idea of progressive overload with this? Where like, if you asked me to teach a client how to progress from week to week in their lifts, I could give it to you in an elevator pitch. I'm not as 
I don't have the articulation here for this uh, correl- the correlate in terms of cardio. So what metrics are you having people like track? Yeah. What are they looking at? And then how might you, uh, you know, prescribe progressive overload over time? Yeah. So for me, that threshold test that I have people do with running, but you can kind of do the same thing. Now, I'm not going to give you all my calculator for free. You can buy that for me. But um, I, you, it's just a 30 to 60 minute all out effort. And then you can see how much distance you cover during that time is essentially our proxy of improvement, race improvements and right. anything like that. But if you aren't racing and running training, you can do the same thing. Like, so when in my other programs and things that we do, like for, if you're like, I do a 2000 meter row test on the rower at the beginning for those. And you can test it at the end or like the 4,000 meter bike test or the 10 minute max effort calories on the air bike, pick something like that. That's fun for you to see like and test yourself in like three month intervals or so like three to four month intervals, because it's probably going to take about eight to 12 weeks for you to actually see any adaptations of things. Um, like that's like CrossFit too. Like you have these keystone workouts that people do and you repeat and you can see that do the same thing in your training, like give yourself something fun to test yourself and check in on, um, after time. But then in general, it's, it's a little, it's kind of like lifting where your body's guiding. You're not in, you're not forcing progressive overload. You're increasing weight based off what your body can do. The same thing happens. Like if you notice you're like, like, Oh, like, so this happened to me a few weeks ago. Right. I feel like after months and months of running after my injury, all of a sudden I was running and it felt really easy. And I looked down at my watch and it was in the nines again. And I haven't been able to run below 10 minute miles without pain in my Achilles. So I didn't notice that I was running that fast until I looked at my watch and I was like, oh, we can do that again now, right? Like my heart rate was like still in the 140s. I still slowed down. I still slowed down. I did. I still slowed down everyone. Cause I was like, I don't need to be running that fast. This is an easy effort run. We don't need to do that today. I went back into the tens, but I was like, it was good to know that I could do it. Right. But I watched it. Like it, it was like my, it, my like, pace dropped while my heart rate stayed the same in the inverse, your pace, your heart rate will be lower at the same pace you're doing. You'll have these physiological things that are telling you that adaptations are occurring and they have breakthroughs and they're like months later that you notice it. So that's why I like, I like just paying attention to your data and not being so married to it that your entire identity is defined with the fact that you couldn't stay in zone two that day. But if your pace starts increasing and your heart rate stays the same, or your heart rate drops at the same pace that you're doing, you are adapting. That's how you know. And the way you, this is why I rag on this on Instagram all the time where people are like, cardio makes you fat and you don't gain weight and you adapt. I'm like, that's the point. But when that happens and you can start going at a faster, harder pace at that same heart rate, yes, if you stay at that same pace you were doing, you will just keep adapting and staying there and not making any progress. But if you up the pace, it's like Jordan does a workout and he notices suddenly, oh my God, my heart rate dropped 10 beats per minute. And I maintain the same intensity that I did three weeks ago for the last three weeks. He might then say, oh, okay, so I'm going to start maintaining whatever that if it's 350 Watts on the air bike for those, that workout, I'm going to go to 375. I don't know. That's really impressive. That's I don't really think impressive. you're that fit, Jordan. Yeah. I don't, I'm just picking Wild. numbers off the top no, of my I head, 200 you. to 215. Um, but like, that's what you might you might do then to keep progressing that. So you're just going to then find that next phase. So like, if you get faster as a runner, you're going to start running your harder efforts at faster paces. That's what you're going to start doing. So the same thing is like, if you're doing quality sprint hit type workouts is increasing that pace effort or intensity or aiming for a new, like seeing time goals go down on that or meters covered or distance covered. Like those are the ways that you're going to know. And then you know what you can do. So it's kind of like when you go to do a set of bicep curls and you pick the 25s and all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, my RIR feels like 
five. And then the next week you could, you pick 30 because it brings you back to the intensity that matches your prescription, right? Same thing applies. I think that the, in this case, the, that progressive overload is, it's always technically reactionary. You're always responding to an adaptation that's happened. Um, you're not forcing something adaptations to happen. Essentially there's like an inverse understanding of progressive overload anyway, but the two that, that kind of stick out to me are, I let's so I'll give an example for me. I go on the, this fucking stupid treadmill that this Peloton treadmill, which we'll talk about in a second, that is bothering me with the watts thing. But I know that roughly I'm in zone two at like a ten incline, three point one walk or something like that, whatever. And I've been doing that roughly. It took me a while to kind of triangulate where that was. And uh, recently, I did the same workout and. Like, I, like at this point, I'm like, I'm not gonna use heart rate. I know that this workout generally gets me in the ballpark of all these other proxies. So for now I can kind of use that as my like directive. Um, and I found out that my heart rate was like not getting up high and it felt easier. And so it's obviously, you know, whatever, there could be other acute factors, but that's a representation of potential adaptations that have occurred. And so I'm doing the same workout I've done either, like you said, either faster or I'm doing that same workout and it is subjectively easier or objectively my heart rate is lower or my, again, my RPE is lower or talk test is easier. Um, or you use other metrics like your RPE and your talk test and your heart rate. And in order to get there, you see that you can go faster or you can produce more watts. And I wanna talk a little bit about watts really quickly as like a universal measure of power output that can kind of transcend different modalities all at once. And so if you're, you know, if you're cycling or you're, or you're on the treadmill or you're on the erg or a ski erg or a bike erg or, or a rower or whatever, um, that, that Watts is a metric, a metric of power output and kind of is, I mean, I'm, I've, it's not speed, but it is a production. It is a, a measure of power. And the one thing that I will say, and so essentially the more, the faster you go on a treadmill, that's more Watts. The, the faster you pull and the harder the resistance on a rower, the more Watts, all of this. So the harder you're working, the more Watts. Um, and the thing that I've become obsessed with is a Watts per kilo metric. Um, and so I, upon obsession with this metric, uh, got really excited about getting a treadmill in my home, doing all this zone two and watching my Watts per kilo get better. And essentially Watts per kilo, meaning how many Watts can I do while remaining in zone two at a certain body weight and seeing that number go up as a metric of, of these adaptations. And so there's only one non-commercial treadmill on the entire market that shows Watts, not Nordic track, not, and maybe you know more than me, but no, not, I called Nordic track. They don't do it. Horizon, they don't do I'm, it. Echelon, they don't do it. I don't do, do treadmills. And, I, and, I just don't do them. And I don't blame you. You're, 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 from a performance standpoint and an enjoyment standpoint, I'd rather be outside, but from an ability to like set a, a pace and absolutely maintain it, that like that neuroticism to keep it exactly the same. Jordan, I'm going to make you cry in a second with my answer. Okay, okay, okay. My point is that, that I got, got so obsessed with this metric and searched far and wide for a treadmill that showed Watts, just so, not because it was like the only thing I cared about, but because it was this like cool objective measure that transcended other modalities that maybe I could see, I could use other modalities. Mm -hmm. And this fucking thing, it is not the same. It tells me I'm like in an elite level of fitness. Like, why is this not a Googleable? And you you might have the answer. Why isn't this a Googleable algorithm where like, if I'm doing three three miles an hour on treadmill, 10 miles, 10 incline, that's, it spits out. Like my, at a treadmill downstairs, that's a commercial treadmill in my apartment complex, at, at the same speed and incline, it's a different number. Like that bothered the shit out of me to the point where I need to return this thing because the watt metrics tells me I'm fucking Lance Armstrong. When in reality, I know I'm like one missed workout away from metabolic syndrome in terms of cardiovascular fitness and so I, it was a bit frustrating for me but anyway yeah. my actual question to you uh was do you use that at all is that something you personally use at all is it something that you're 
talk to clients about? Is it something that is even on the radar for you? So watts per kilo or just a watts metric in general? So my fiance and PhD advisor, he did all of his stuff on like CrossFit type stuff. And my PhD advisor is really into CrossFit. So we talked a lot about this stuff all the time. And the idea that I'll get it to here is that everything is a metric of power output. And that is how much work you can do and you can produce. So yes. And the work you can produce is the proxy of fitness. VO2 max is metabolic work produced, right? So watts are great. I think for like finding out intensities, if you're doing rower or bike or maintaining a wattage in a workout, like a Metcon or interval or hit type thing. I've never gone to the what's the, the Watts per kilo type thing, but in general, that's a metric of power output. So I understand why you liked it because it was transcending all different measures of things, but also like your VO2 max on a bike will be lower than your VO2 max. And it turns out the watts are going to be completely different based on how efficient you are at that movement. And so it's like, yeah, it's so like, it doesn't actually matter really, anyway. I'm, I hate I'm, to yeah. break that to you. Yeah. So what I would worry about more is how much work you can produce and how much work you can produce is essentially like the pace you're sustaining. Yeah, same. More or less. Totally. Yeah. It's kind of indirectly the same thing. It is. It but is. fitness is the the work you can produce. So it is important. You're totally. not wrong for caring about this and worrying about this. Um, But I wouldn't say so much to worry about getting a Peloton treadmill so that you have that. Agreed. Um, I love you, Jordan. But no, I really I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you hundred percent. And, 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 and I've realized that like, it's about apples to apples comparisons for me. It's about directionality. It's about improvement. It's not about benchmarks. And so this thing still tells me Watts. And so instead of comparing these Watts and, and using it as this, this number that could transcend other modalities, like I'm realizing that if I, if I want to just keep using it, as long as I'm still on this treadmill and all the other variables are consistent, that I can still use it. Um, just forget the benchmarks, look directionality wise, make sure it's improving over time. And I still get excited about seeing it grow. And that's the pep talk yeah. they give to everyone, yeah. even if they do a VO2 max measure or a body composition measure is just use it as a data as a relationship to itself. Don't stress about the categories that it fits in. Just right. focus on improving it. Yeah, I'm with I that, mean, yeah. I have to say that with a grain of salt with body comp because not everyone needs to decrease body comp, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, <laughs> like worry about how that makes sense for you and directionality, um, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. So you're not on the wrong track though because work output is fitness is fitness and improved fitness is a matter of doing more total work. Yep. Right? Yep. Okay, I've sucked up a bunch of your time and it's been incredibly <laughs> insightful. And I honestly think that, it, it was, there's just like, we could keep going down this route. And to be honest, you've been going down this route for the last decade. And so, you know, I'm excited to play catch up with my knowledge and application of this yeah, stuff. And no. so I, I appreciate you coming on, sharing your expertise. Is there anything you felt we didn't say that you want to leave people with something that, that you, um, you think we missed? I think the important thing is like really reiterating, like be patient, don't lie to yourself. And if you're not doing a ton of cardio a week, there might be a benefit of you doing more intense stuff rather than only zone two. Like there might be a more of a trade-off there for like bang for your buck. I don't want people to think that zone two is the cure-all for everything. It's just that you can accumulate a lot of it. And it's not fatiguing. Be patient. I'm really going to emphasize that. And like, it's not that serious. Don't don't like most of you. I love you. I love you so much. You're not fit enough to be sitting here trying to play mind Tetris on if you're in your zone two or not, like just slow down, just literally slow down. Like that's all it's like, just, just slow down and like be okay with being less fit cardiovascularly. If you haven't been doing this for a long time, right? Like 
even me coming back from my injury, I had to use all the hard, tough love, ego pill swallowing advice that I give you guys for years and years and years. And like, you have to be patient and keep showing up. And it takes a lot of volume of this for you to see a lot of the benefits. So like, if you're doing less volume because you're not doing a ton of working out, like that's where, you know, make sure you're filtering in that higher intensity, but also it might just take a little bit longer because you're not doing as much. And so like, it's not that serious. Decide if you're doing a performance for health, where it fits in with everything else. Um, don't lie to yourself about the metrics. Don't get hung up on it all. And if we did not answer every question that is related to zone two here, I have an ebook and dirt and if it's running specific. So if you don't want to run, don't get it, but it really does go into this more. You can get my zone calculator. You can do a threshold test. You can calculate all that out. That's my shameless plug um, for my stuff right now. But like, it's, it's just the fitness industry making something almost that is super simple and science-based into something more gimmicky than it needs to be. Just slow down. Yeah. <laughs> the end. Yeah. Not and all that just to say slow down. <laughs> a big well, you know this. The big problem with the big problem with doing this zone two is the inability to feel exhausted and and the, our yearning for feeling fatigued and our again we just talked about like this like not being uber focused is actually like probably not being like uber in the zone, like let's fucking go. Like that's probably like a good sign you're still in zone two if you're not in that zone. But a lot of us want that feeling. And so there's there's a lot of, uh, there's just a, a, I wanna feel exhausted. At the end of a zone two, like I'm not, I, I'm not saying you should get off just because, like I'm more bored at the end of a zone two. Not that it's boring, but I'm more like, I'm not getting off. I'm not doing my last 10 minutes being like, wow, I'm about to die. And I think a lot of yeah. people want that feeling so that this actual doing of zone two and and kind of putting off that feeling and, and recognizing that that's not the sign of a good workout and all of that stuff. And uh, it's challenging for a lot of people. And I see people and all the time. And we're all nowadays, right? We're all about mental tenacity and not being yeah, distracted grind, and grind game. mental yeah. resilience yeah. and like, let's take a cold shower. But I'm like, what if you just did some zone two yeah, and focused fast, yeah. and didn't get distracted during totally. it? And that's my hot take of the day, right? Like, Learn to just sit there and do it and be okay with not your exercise killing you all of the time. And if you're really hung up on that, then like do some hard finished stuff and call that your high intensity for the week. Do a few sprint efforts and get off for the day. Like, Cool. I appreciate your time a ton. I'm going to plug all that stuff. Actually, I'm, I'm actually quite interested in doing uh, some of those tests actually myself. I have not done a max heart rate test. I haven't done it. I want to have a benchmark. I want to whether it's a max heart rate test or something. Not there's that a VO2. There's an, I have like, I mean, I have a post somewhere on Instagram too. You can probably find on my website where you can like how to like test your VO2 max indirectly, like using different non-invasive lab tests. So like you guys can do that stuff too. Like you don't have to go by like lactate meter like Jordan, but like even if you don't have like my calculator of all these things, like just go figure out a way to do an all out effort and then repeat that six Three, right. six months later. Right, exactly. Like, it, really it can be that simple. simple. Totally, it yeah. can be that simple. I love that. All right, Liz, thank you so, so much for your time. I appreciate it, ton. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.